Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to John Ellidge and George Eaton about whether Labour can be truly radical. Ian Steadman, Ajit Niranjan and I will talk about whether Facebook is evil, and I talk to Robin Ince about being a militant atheist. I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and John Ellidge, editor of City Metric, to talk about the week in politics. George, you've written your column this week about Ed Miliband caught between radicalism and caution. Um, why has that become such a theme this week? Well, it's partly because of the intervention by John Crellis, unintended intervention. So um, he gave a speech at a Compass meeting, which was, he says, secretly recorded. Other people say anyone had access to that meeting, so you kind of should be on the lookout for it, right? Yes, and that has fed into the sense that some of um, Miliband's supporters and and others in the Labour Party have had for a while that he's not being radical enough, that he's not uh, setting out the kind of visionary platform that they think the party needs to win, um, needs needs to offer to win in, in 2015. And there are different explanations offered for this. So in the past, it used to be that, oh, he's too cautious because of the Blairites and they've um, sort of uh, led him astray. And then the Lem McCluskey, of course, was, was famously the proponent of that thesis. Uh, now it's more often Ed Balls, who is blamed, uh, or, or Douglas Alexander, who's running the general election campaign. In, in my column, I suggest that actually the most important struggle may not be between um, factions within 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 the Labour Party, but within Miliband himself. So there is the radical Miliband, the one who says, "I'm bringing back socialism. I'm going to sweep away three decades of neoliberalism um, through a sort of Thatcherite revolution in reverse." And then there is the cautious Miliband who learned his politics at the feet of Gordon Brown, and who says, "Sorry, I want to make capitalism slightly nicer," and and who reveres sort of consensual one nation politics. And so I think um, a lot of the time people are, are misidentifying uh, the source of the problem. Uh, and Miliband, in the end, is the only one who could solve it. So there's this idea, isn't it, that he's sort of people are fighting over his affections. But you're, like you say, it's, it's with him himself. John, um, I'm interested in your take. How radical do you think the Miliband project has been so far? 
I think there's certainly a case that Miliband has been at his best when he has been radical. I think his strongest moments have generally been when he stood up and when he when he first started taking on the Murdoch Empire in the middle of the phone hacking thing, when that was kicking off in 2011, or when he took on the energy companies. These were things where he was, you know, he was kind of breaking the rules of British politics and of what what you could get away with. And both those encounters, he he did get quite a strong boost from. It does feel recently like he's been a lot more nervous about making such an intervention. But I wonder whether that's because actually there aren't that many topics where you can kind of stick your neck out like that and and kind of win the affection of the public. I mean, the, the British public are not generally in favour of uh, money-gouging energy companies. And Rupert, Mur- Mur- no, Rupert Murdoch, despite the success of his newspapers, is not the most popular man in the world. Um, so in some ways, they're quite easy targets for a left-wing politician. I wonder if the problem is that actually there just aren't that many of those kind of targets out there where he can make a relatively radical pitch without it feeling massively risky. I also wonder if there's a point about the media. And the thing is, no politician should ever complain about the media because it always sounds completely all diddums. But you are looking at a media that is largely right-wing. The newspapers are, you know, the the broadcasters have a duty to be neutral, obviously. But while earlier in the electoral cycle, perhaps some of those right-wing papers were prepared to give Cameron a good kicking, for example, exposing the divisions in the Tory party over Europe, I wonder if now, with a year to go to the general election, they aren't deciding actually to swing in behind the guy that they've got and turn their fire on Ed Miliband. I mean, George, do you think that's a... Is that a workable thesis? I think there is definitely an element of that of that at play I think you saw it particularly after the budget when it got a, it, it, it was it was certainly George Osborne's best delivered budget but the response from the press was was rapturous and, and it didn't merit it didn't merit that reception um, I also think there is a desire to see Labour defeated um, because a lot of these papers remember when Miliband was elected leader in, in 2010 said he can't win he's going to be another Michael Foote he's going to be Labour's William Hague Labour's Ian Duncan Smith they will feel that their own credibility is is at stake if if he somehow goes on to win, um, and then it's it is because they think um, you know, Miliband government would be bad for business, and they are of course businesses themselves. Well, this is one of the fascinating things about about talking about Murdoch is the fact that the Sun didn't endorse any party, did they, at the recent European and local elections, which is the first time they've done that, as far as I remember, for a long time. Is there a sense then that they don't want to endorse anybody, or does no one want the endorsement now? I think that was a, a mid-term flounce by the sun. I'm sure that they will... The um, blue smoke will pipe over yeah. whopping again. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Um, um, but they like to keep David Cameron and the Tories on their toes. I think they like to sort of keep them guessing, even though everyone knows that the sun will will back the Conservatives. There's no doubt they, they'll, they'll back UKIP. Um. And John, I mean, do you think we when we have these conversations about Labour, I always think it's funny that you could say almost all the things you say about Labour, about the Tories, well, it, it would be absolutely unprecedented in many ways for them to win from the basis that they're at at the moment. No government, I think, has gained seats in Parliament since, you know, before the Second World War. 1983, I think, but there was a, a split in the left at the time, which was, I think, one of the reasons everyone got very excited about UKIP, because it looked like there might be a split in the right. So could that effect work the other way? Um, to which the answer is probably going to be no. Um, but yes, I mean, the Tory party are in a terrible state and nobody's talking about this because I think it's the reason you've already identified that, that much of the media would like them to win. Um, there was a very odd column by Ben Brogan, who was then deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph about a few months back, 
in which he was just absolutely mystified that the econ- economic recovery wasn't translating into a, a, a poll boom for the Conservatives. And I really don't think that's a question that you need to ask. The reason voters are not turning back to the Conservatives in droves is because most people aren't yet feeling that recovery. The cost of living is still through the roof. And a lot of people are very unhappy with both their own financial situation and with the state of politics. I think the the failure of any of the parties to really get ahead is kind of the the defining feature of the current political situation. It's that nobody much likes any of them. And were you in the Commons, George, when the Tory MPs were sort of slapping camera on the back mm. for sticking it to Jean-Claude Juncker? I find that a fascinating topic as well, because I think that, you know, this is something that obviously the Tory party are in raptures over the fact that David Cameron has, as they've seen it, you know, gone to Brussels and turned his back, like Nigel Farage, metaphorically turning his back <laughs> on the EU, whereas Nigel Farage did it literally this week when they were playing the new EU anthem. But do, do any voters care? Some do, um, but not many. And it is not, I mean, quite famously now, it, it never makes it into the top 10 of, of voters' concerns. Um, and a lot of those voters who care about it the most are, are, are with UKIP and, and are going to leave them, that they will support the only party that promises to pull out of the EU. I mean, there's one suggestion now is that Cameron may change his stance to explicitly threaten to campaign for a no vote, not to say that he will, but to make it clearer that he is prepared to do so. Um, that is that is the next shift, if you like, in this chapter of um, cumulative so Euroscepticism. Remember, Cameron didn't want to offer any EU referendum at all. He marched through the lobbies uh, along with every other Conservative minister to vote against one in 2011. This was forced out of him by his party. But I'm interested in the genesis of that increasing Euroscepticism. I mean, the Tory backbenchers, there has always been a hardcore of Euroscepticism. Why is it a false idea that people have gone to UKIP because of the EU that's then driven further Tory backbench ideas that this is a vote winning strategy? I think it's because the EU has changed significantly since the Tories were last in power and, and they were impotent for, for years while Labour was in government and as they sort of signed up to treaties that a Conservative government wouldn't have done or, or that they would have done everything in their power to stop it doing so. And of course, they were promised a referendum by David Cameron in, in opposition on, on the Lisbon Treaty that he then failed to deliver in government. And so they feel as if we have been waiting for so long to have an opportunity to send the message we want to to the EU. I think that's why, um, why it came to a head. And actually, the longer this... Um, Parliament has gone on, you see why Cameron's speech last year promising a, re- a referendum was so necessary. So I think it's quite possible if he hadn't offered that vote, he would no longer be Conservative leader. And John, you wrote a piece for the New Statesman website saying what an ardent Europhile you are. I, I just felt somebody should. I think it's a very unfashionable un- position to take these days. So Unite's leader, Lemma McCluskey, has called this week for Labour to change their stance and offer a, a referendum. I mean, there's a, some vague language about whether or not they'll offer a referendum if new powers, which is what everybody says. But should they make a more explicit commitment to a referendum? I think there is actually a pro-European case for a referendum in that, you know, maybe if if a referendum was fought and won, we could put this issue to bed for two or three years. Um, But I don't actually see any political upside for the Labour Party in getting on board with the idea of a referendum, because you've got to ask... Who, whose vote are they going to win with that promise that they haven't got now? I don't see any of the voters they've lost to UKIP 
suddenly turning back to the Labour Party because there's suddenly a referendum on the table? Because it's not really the EU that's the problem here. It's economic issues and immigration and so on that have actually alienated those kind of uh, what used to be Labour's core white working class vote. I don't, I think Europe is almost a bit of a red herring as an issue. So I think the only person who wins if Labour were to promise a referendum is Nigel Farage. Well, tragically, that's all the time we have. So, George, I won't be able to ask you about localism, um, but maybe another week on the podcast. Thank you very much to John and George. I'm joined by our former guest editor, Robin Ince, to talk about ritual and religion. Um, Robin, my first question, of course, is why do you hate Christmas and want to ban it? Ah, uh, yeah, of course. Do you know what? It's something to do with the baubles from a Freudian perspective, apparently. Since I've gone into psychoanalysis, it turns out that it was nothing to do with God. Uh, it was all to do to uh, some kind of recessed memory of mine. Um, no, I, well, of course, as you know, uh, I... Uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm being I, unfair, I, aren't I? I mean, this is the question that you all kind of... As, a, as a somebody who's quite a prominent atheist, you get asked on to talk about atheism and then it becomes, why do you hate baby Jesus? Well, I think the general thing is actually, I, I say no to almost all those things now because whenever I've said yes, they always say, it just give me a nice casual talk with, uh, you know, a couple of really friendly liberal bishops. And then by the time you actually get into the studio, uh, they have dug out the kind of the, the, the most furious street preachers from some, you know, faraway island uh, who haven't had human contact and have possibly lived in, in an angry cave. And so I generally, I mean, my thing is I, I've been described in the past as an angry atheist. And I've always said, you know, uh, you know, they're separate issues. I'm angry and an atheist. They're, they're, one doesn't feed into the other necessarily. Well, you're not at all angry in the magazine this week. So we've, um, we've done a collection of pieces about ritual, about the things that maybe replace God in people's lives. And yours is all about going into secondhand bookshops. Yeah, I was trying to think of what it is that I, I'm not very good at being kind of, you know, generally peaceful and at one with myself uh, and all that kind of stuff. You know, I probably do need to lie in some kind of saline solution in a flotation tank at some point in my existence. But I um, so it was quite hard to think about because I, I don't like to switch off very often. Uh, and um, then I did think that my favorite thing, the, the near because I don't drive, you know, you hear people say that when they go driving, they, you know, they kind of lose the self-awareness and then you arrive somewhere and you go oh now I'm here I wonder what happened and the nearest equivalent I can think to that is going to a town like Eastbourne and some of the uh, the wonderful secondhand bookshops there and just becoming absolutely lost in the spines of books but this is quite a, a trendy thing now isn't it to say that if you don't have religion you have other things that replace it but I'm going to blame you for all of this because really the show that you used to do nine lessons and carols for godless people was the first kind of thing that said if we, even if we can't have Christian rituals, let's have all the things that we liked about them. Well, I'm not entirely sure that was the reasoning behind it. I, it's, it seems such a long time ago. I'm not. I think uh, the main, the real main reason behind that that, sh that show that I did at Christmas was because I got bored of seeing people going, "Oh, atheists are all angry. They don't want anyone to have any joy. They just want to go. You want to know what life is? Look at these equations. That's it." And I thought, well, everyone that I kind of hang around with who, who didn't necessarily have any kind of, you know, deity or, or what might be called you know, religious faith, they all seemed to have a very jolly time and be very excited about lots of things. So I think the predominant thing was to, first of all, get rid 
of uh, this this myth that merely by losing uh, a deity, you therefore go, life is pointless, it will end eventually, you know, that kind of Schopenhauer thing that, you know, life is this tortuous thing and then then thank heavens it, it's all over. And so that was a lot of what it was about, really, which was to, to not to replace, you know, the nativity, etc., but more just to go, oh, I'm having quite a lot of fun at Christmas as well. And in the time that you were doing that, did you notice a trend changing? Because you probably started it when new atheism was the big thing and we had Christopher Hitchens' book mm-hmm. and Richard Dawkins' book and there was a huge amount of energy around that, that movement. It, did you feel that energy's changed recently? Well, I suppose like anything, it starts off, it's, this, it's, it's, it's a sharp spike. I mean, what I mainly notice is that it's still, it's very good at selling things. You know, as you know, with the new statesman, you know, if, if you do a God issue or an atheist issue, the one thing you'll know is that your, your letter, you know, your mailbag. And- hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, the uh, underneath articles on the internet will be pretty full. Um, God does move in mysterious ways, particularly does, yes, in W. H. Smith. So I, I think it's just it, it kind of moves on. And I mean, I sometimes forget about the importance of it for some people, which is that if you live in uh, an existence where you're surrounded by lots of liberal people and you can kind of express yourself, um, then it didn't really seem as important. But I would often meet people in kind of small towns, uh, little places where they would think that they were the only one. That too. And, and this is, of course, not merely true about, you know, philosophical positions that you might have. You know, it may well be true about sexuality and all these different things that it's very easy sometimes for people, uh, if they, if they live in a city to think, well, everything's fine now and no one minds what you are. And then you can move into kind of smart and you, you can very often feel, uh, you know, a sense of, of solitude. So certainly when I kind of toured some of those shows around as well, that was part of what it was about was, you know, you'd, you'd go to a town and find that all the, um, all the outsider librarians and goths would gather together that's funny because when we had richard dawkins guest edit um Stephen, our subscriptions manager ended up sending a lot of single issues to kind of a tiny town in iowa or missouri or somewhere like that and you thought yeah this is probably the person who is the only atheist in an otherwise extremely religious town and that's something that the internet has changed you know those people are probably all now hanging out on r slash atheism or the richard dawkins foundation forums yeah, I mean, I think that's where that's probably sometimes where, when people first have that moment of of, of coming out as as anything. Uh, I think that you can end up being in a more extreme position. You know, when when you first go, I've realised that I am this. Therefore, I hate all forms of opposition to this grand idea that I, I have or that I've received. So I think that sometimes, you know, in the initial point, you might think, you know, when you did start to get people writing about, you know, this this fundamentalist atheist movement, which I. I you know, predominantly don't think really does exist. Um, a lot of that, I think, was merely fed on the idea that for some people, this was the first time they were writing or talking about these things openly. And when you first come out with these kind of things, I think you can be more extreme. And before we go, I just want to ask you about your next show. So you're doing a show at the Edinburgh Festival. Will that have atheist themes, big philosophical themes, or will it be you shouting about trousers? 
I trousers are always a very important part of my work, as you know. Um, I, it, do you know what? I'm surrounded by books at this very moment that I'm talking to you, and I'm not entirely sure what it is. I think it's going to be part two of a show that I started touring about kind of self-awareness and how that affects you. And so it's partly about how uh, frogs will starve to death if just put in front of a load of dead flies and that we get very tired being self-aware all the time. So somewhere along the line, somewhere between frogs inability to realize the nutritional value of non-moving flies uh and the pain of self-awareness of being human i I, one of the things that stayed with me a lot is there's a Feynman, richard Feynman, the the nobel prize winning physicist talked about meeting a monk and the monk said this the famous phrase which is you know the keys to heaven also open the gates to hell and and i think that's partly what the show's about which is so many of the things that we have as human beings so many of the kind of the possible intricacies of our mental processes and and self-consciousness gives enormous advantages but also can be all the things that can can push us down as well and and i think that's true you know that would be true of many of the the new kind of tools that we have as well you know when people get really angry about the internet and they go oh it's revealed that human beings are sordid and vile and mean-spirited but of course there's also lots of other things that it's revealed as well so it's so many of these tools are about how you wish to use them i was just thinking what did richard Feynman say to the monk do you know what he never said? I think he was just I think he was just intrigued because Richard Feynman was, you know, always interested in experiencing as many kind of different cultures as possible. And I think he was talking about, you know, here scientific endeavor, scientific ideas, here they are. We have to, you know, when when we use our curiosity to discover uh, you know, new ideas. And I think, of course, for Richard Feynman, because he worked at Los Alamos, he worked on the development uh of the atom bomb. And uh, you know, they they were gripped with a tremendous on it and then you know afterwards when the war was over Feynman found himself you know off, often panicked and and slightly thrown by or more than slightly thrown by by thinking you know what have we done you know as much as you know Robert Oppenheimer being similar so I think it you know his, his point was merely you know be, be careful be careful you know there, there are grand ideas out there and it's our our job as as curious creatures to work out the best way to use them well that's a nice optimistic note to end on thank you very much Robin I'm joined by our science writer Ian Stedman and our welcome trust scholar Ajit Niranjan to talk about whether or not Facebook is evil. What we did last week, is Google evil? This week, Ian, the big question is, is Facebook evil? Yes, uh, because they've been going around making people depressed uh, without their knowledge. This is the big controversy this week. Um, A study came out, well, earlier this month, and it's kind of been rumbling on, um, where some data scientists from Facebook and Cornell uh, decided to, they had access to Facebook's news feeds and you know Facebook's news feed isn't really kind of everything your friends post or every page that you like. It's kind of a curated pe- uh, list of things that it thinks you'll like out of the activity that your friends do. Um, and that's controlled by an algorithm which Facebook is always tweaking and changing to try and make more effective. And um, they uh, th- this experiment, as I say, was published at the start of the month, but the actual experiment was done in February 2012 and they took 700,000 users as their kind of uh, experimental sample. And they decided what would happen if we changed the newsfeed algorithm so that for a week, half of these people only see sad stuff and another half only see happy stuff. What will happen? And they did that. And after a week, they found the people who 
I mean, funnily enough, the people who saw depress- uh, like depressing, sad stuff started posting more depressing and sad things themselves, and vice versa for the, the happy people who saw only happy things. One of my questions about this has been about how did they tell what was sad? They had this... Um, uh, linguistic analysis sort of program that you can run. It's used oh, a, sentiment analysis. Yeah, it's, it's used a lot in um, literature studies and stuff like that. It kind of looks at a phrase and sort of works out, assigns each word an emotional score, and then there's an overall score like plus my, plus three for happy or minus one for, but it for anger. Been, it can't be too sophisticated. No, it's you know, not. It's it's it, it, irony it, or sarcasm. Could I the... test all of your blog posts? You could. As like an early warning I mean, system it's, it's to a, see if <laughs> it's sad. It's a super crude method. Um, it kind of relies on it all kind of averaging out is roughly accurate rather than, I mean, there are going to be quite a few false positives and negatives. Um, and, and to be fair, the, the statistical um, significance of the, of the results they found were um, not huge. It was something like it barely, you need to sort of uh, reach a five percentage. You're going to talk about p-values, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, basically <laughs> they, they, they only okay. managed to make people, <laughs> it was, it was a result that was, at the very borderline of statistically significant. So, I mean, it wasn't like they were making people suicidal, but it is still a massive ethics violation because this is a psychology experiment that was conducted on 700,000 people without their consent, and that's Ah, a big no-no. That's not what Facebook say, though, is it? They say that by signing up to the terms and conditions, you had implicitly given consent. Um, Ajit, something like this, how much do you think it will affect people's trust in Facebook? Or do you think people just think, yeah, I'm a lab rat, but on the other hand, God, I I love looking at babies. (laughs) I can't see anyone actually... And the only way you could get out of it is to get rid of Facebook, and nobody's going to be willing to do that anytime soon, really. Although I'm I'm meeting more and more Facebook... Some people are, yeah. And And there's also, I mean, Facebook want kind of relies its entire business model needs you to kind of keep feeding it information about your life and you can kind of get away with using facebook for keeping in touch with friends but you don't have to do stuff like put photos of yourself up there or go to events or like pages and stuff you can still use facebook so there's a way to kind of subvert the medium that way one of the um, things that Laurie Penny, one of our writers, uh, covered this week when she was looking at this story was the idea that they've already done this. In 2010, they looked at people's voting patterns mm-hmm. and they found out that by putting banners saying, go vote, they could actually then compare them with electoral rolls and they were genuinely yeah. motivated. It to wasn't vote. just banners. It was banners with the faces of fr- your friends yeah. who had themselves voluntarily said, like, I've gone to vote. Like, you, you know how you check yeah. in on Facebook. You checked in and said you'd voted. And that led to... Um, it was like a point. Did it say who you'd voted for? So it'd go like, no, 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 Ian no, no, is no, sad no. that you voted UK. I mean, you could say that Facebook, you, you could probably post that as a status update, but it didn't ask for that. It just asked yeah. if you'd voted. And it read to a 0.39% increase in turnout, which is, you think, like, really small. That's 0.39%. What does that mean? But those 0.39% of people who saw that banner ad and then went to vote, they also made their friends go and vote. There's the ripple effect. And the study estimated that that led to an extra uh, 340,000 votes being cast in that election which is astonishing particularly in america where the electoral college system means that some people's votes you know don't count some yeah. states they just weigh the vote of one side or the other but if you live in ohio for example in what a district there a very small number of votes can effectively change the course 0. of the election 0.39% would have vote would have definitely swung the election in 2000 between bush and gore in florida yeah, florida, yeah right. where it was come down to a few hundred votes between them and that was the entire election so i think the big question here is whether or not we care enough and whether or not we are ever going to be able to find out about what algorithms are doing that's what i find Mm. so interesting about this is that there's another story that's come out today about google and the right to be forgotten this idea that people can apply Mm. and there's some scottish goalkeeper who's had some old (laughs) convictions taken off the internet but the problem with that is that you don't know what you don't 
No, yeah. they're designed a, to be transparent. It, it's interesting because, you know, dystopian literature like 1984, which this often gets compared to, is always about an explicit thing that you know is happening to you. Like, you know that censorship is happening because you're told it's happening. But this is kind of censorship by accident. Facebook isn't going out of its way to... Facebook and Google aren't going out of their way to sort of change the, the reality as you perceive it. It's just the thing that happens because they're messing around with algorithms in a back room or something. Um, like, the ethics issue in this facebook study is that um the cornell ethics board waved it through supposedly this this is it's kind of a bit confusing at the moment and people aren't entirely sure who's to blame but it looks like cornell's ethics board waved it through because um it constituted a pre-existing data set so normally getting data from seven hundred thousand people is a really big deal um but if you uh if you already have that data and facebook has that data um you can just say oh you you already did the like ethical bit you can just analyze it um and the implication of that is that every time facebook changes its algorithm and it does that like every day it's conducting an experiment like this and we don't know what that is we don't know what the experiment is we don't know what the result of that is but that's the problem they're so coy about all of this and so unwilling to ever yeah. release anything yeah it's, well, it's, it's, it's their know, industry but... secret like yeah. they, they're never going to tell people how they figure out how to run the news feed but then the same thing happens with Google and its secret source of the, of the <laughs> yeah. algorithm. Is they're you know they want that to be seen as an absolutely neutral thing. There was yeah. the uh, Rachel Weston of Google was on the Today program too, and they said you know do you boost Google products up your own Google rankings? And she she didn't answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but which you know you you can draw your own conclusions about. Should we? Well, what point should we start worrying, Ajit, about what we don't know about these companies? Do you, I, I mean, do you at the moment do you feel worried about Facebook or is it a pre-worry? No, well, I think I've already done what Ian said, which is just not share anything explicitly. I'll still talk to friends and everything, but I won't actually go out of my way to let Facebook know anything about me. Um, but yeah, I can't see it, definitely not for the next few years anyway, blowing into something big. Mm. It's fascinating because what we're essentially talking about here is A-B testing. Mm. So the idea that you show half a group of people one thing and half another and that's something that's hugely industry-wide there was yeah. a, a great presentation by upworthy which is this kind of viral site that really knows about how to make people oh, happy yeah. um about you know the fact that they would test headlines against each other competitively until they found the one that was exquisitely like tugged on the heartstring the most <laughs> yeah um and that kind of stuff is happening it happens everywhere. a lot yeah um in the piece i wrote on monday about this facebook thing i, I mentioned that a-B testing, which is really... Google is the real kind of um, I don't know, profit of this kind of method. It is of refining things. Um, and Barack Obama in 2008 specifically hired engineers from Google because of their skill in A-B testing. And he used them... They, like, Barack Obama's campaign was built on micro donations from like $10 and $20 from just average people instead of, well, he also got the big donations, but that was seen as a revolutionary thing. And a lot of that was because they use AB testing on the mail outs, like that whole social media campaign that was so famous. That was directly came out of Google's AB testing and its ability to kind of refine how um, the stuff we see on the internet manipulates us and affects us. So you could put um, in sort of like, will you donate $10 friend or will you yeah, donate $10 absolutely. your name? And one of them would have a much higher click-through rate and yeah. anything like that. I mean, that's certainly something that is used now in in political campaigns. They're very aware of particular words mm. that get a particular segment of going, particular issues that get people going and how they target that. Yeah. And even in that Obama campaign, I think the other thing they did is that they targeted how much they asked for from your donation by what they thought your income was. Yeah. So they didn't bother tapping up students for $50. Yeah. They tried for five. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, if we're talking about 
should we we be worried or like at what point should we get worried arguably shouldn't we have been worried for the past like (laughs) four six years because they've been using these techniques to politically manipulate us all and we just haven't been aware of it you know i i kind of feel like it's in it it's actually kind of lucky and nice that they told us about this study because um clearly they've been doing stuff like this all the time and just not been telling us about it well, on that dystopian note of, uh, of total annihilation of all our own idea of free will, I'm going to say thank you very much to Ajit and Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme tune is Devil with a Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morley.